Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine. Nineteen thousand children are sold for sex in our community. Traffickers prey on our most vulnerable girls, those who have been abused, homeless, and CPS involved. And for these girls, their most common responses to victimization, things like running away or defending themselves against a perpetrator, are also the most common offenses for which we lock girls up. In the juvenile justice system, no one saw this more clearly than the former clinical director at Dallas County Juvenile, Dr. Hae Sung Han. Today, I'm interviewing Hae Sung Han, a clinical psychologist and the co-founder and CEO of Poetic School for Girls, a nonprofit that helps teen girls transition from the juvenile justice system and child protective services. Hae Sung spent the bulk of her career as a clinical psychologist and was struck by the revolving door of girls who had been exploited and trafficked, entering and re-entering system living. She wanted to change that. After just four years in business, Poetic has helped 95% of their members stay out of the system for good. Please note that this episode discusses sexual abuse, sex trafficking, and exploitation of girls and young women. This content may be triggering and may not be suitable for young listeners. Thank you for joining us today, Hesung. Thank you so much for having me. So what are the factors that put young girls in the U.S. at risk for sex trafficking and exploitation? So there are many factors, um, and it comes down to vulnerability. So traffickers and exploiters, they prey on vulnerability. So when you think about youth and what makes them vulnerable, oftentimes it's going to be poverty, um, economic insecurity, homelessness, or being unsheltered, um, essentially having a lack of family or social supports. Also, what's important is the prior childhood sexual abuse and neglect, and also runaway status, um, LGBTQ youth, substance use, mental illness. You know, there's just so many different factors that play along into what makes a youth vulnerable. But ultimately, if a youth is unsheltered, if the youth is on a runaway status or a throwaway status, there is a strong risk um, of being exploited. Because there's the stat that more than 90% of those who have been trafficked as minors were at one time runaway kids. So when you think about traffickers in general, 
You know, they employ a lot of tactics to coerce and induce victims into trafficking situations. And they often tailor to the victim using psychological manipulation, feigning affection. They make um, promises of economic security or make them economic dependent on them. So there's a lot of factors there, but at yeah. the core of it, it's really being disconnected um, and also being preyed on for psychological and um, you know, just the manipulation part of it. And where are they finding the girls, the, the traffickers? Are they mostly working online now? Are they going to teen shelters? How exactly are they connecting with these vulnerable young women? All of that. So, you know, you hear stories of traffickers being arrested outside of group homes, juvenile justice systems, foster care systems. Um, But then also right now, it's really simple because all you need is um, a smartphone and access to social media. And what I have seen is that traffickers will play the long game. So they would start to befriend minors, uh, pretending that they are similar age peers. Um, They are there, they are consistent. So whenever that youth would fall into hard times or have a conflict within the family, you know, they just have to open their phone, turn on the app. And there is somebody who, you know, says that they see you and they they love you and, you know, their parents don't understand. Um, So really it's that building of support or friendship or, you know, pretending to be um, in a romantic relationship, waiting for the long game for that youth to leave the home. And how old are these traffickers on average? The traffickers, I mean, they could range. I mean, you see um, traffickers that are, that are adults, um, but then also youth. You know, there are peer-to-peer recruiting that happens that, ha- that happens all the time. So I wouldn't say that there necessarily is like a standard age, but it's a very, you know, robust and complicated um, enterprise. And in terms of age, when you think about the age of onset of uh, youth being exploited or trafficked, um, it's anywhere between 12 to 14 as the average age. These are just kids. I um, I heard your co-founder say that trafficking victims are raped on average 10 to 20 times per night, which is why it's really necessary that your program delivers intensive trauma therapy, weekly group therapy sessions, art therapy, internships for economic opportunities. Tell us about what it takes to help these girls heal from such horrific trauma. Yeah, the process of healing looks different for everyone. So for some having a licensed therapist and seeing that person weekly is helpful. And for some, having a mentor or an advocate or a trusted friend is enough. For some, the church or spiritual support is enough. Um, but what I've seen is that, you know, we can't forget the cycle of abuse is bigger than a traumatic incident. So to give you an example, the pattern that I typically see is that of a young girl She was sexually abused by a family member or a trusted adult. Um, The allegations that she made was not supported by her caregiver or that the disclosure created such a rupture in her family relationships, ultimately leading to isolation and alienation and feeling not seen or connected. Um, And then, you know, you layer on abuse, you know, she might be exposed to domestic violence and physical abuse or neglect. And in order to survive, she escapes her abuse by running away. And, you know, often what you would see is because of frequent runaway history, 
um, the youth would be truant from school. So after years of this pattern and being so academically behind, um, the youth, youth would often just give up and no longer go to school. Um, this leads to potentially substance uses to manage her every day. So numbing yourself to escape the world so that it's a little less painful. And the social group that she connects to in the street is basically fueling her drug habit. And this can be a boyfriend, a significant other that introduces her to commercial sexual exploitation by some level of manipulation or coercion. So, you know, it's this idea that you need to contribute um, and make money. If you love me, you would do this. You know, we're in this together. You know, we just need enough to find a nicer place, you know, and keep in mind, she's still a minor. Then this leads to potentially her being arrested, sent to juvenile justice. And considering her many offenses, a runaway and substance use, she will essentially lose a year of her life being detained and potentially sent to placement. So it's it's so complicated, it's so complex, and it's more than just an incident of trauma. It's, you know, layers and layers and layers of child maltreatment. Do you feel like our current system doesn't address that underlying mental health component? It just goes straight towards solve it through education or solve it through job training? Yes, yes, 100%. You know, in Texas, um, we have one of the lowest per capita of mental health spending. You know, mental health is not emphasized enough. And the impact of stressors in childhood, whether it be in the form of abuse or neglect or racism or just just stressors of every day. So to your point, yes, it's often overlooked and it's focused on, you know, if you have a job, then everything is going to be okay. If you have a mentor, an advocate, or friend, that everything is going to be okay. Um, but it's just, you know, it's deeper than that. So childhood sexual abuse is one of the biggest predictors of entry into the juvenile justice system, which you said these young women are losing up to a year, if not more, of their lives stuck in the system. Tell us more about the sexual abuse to prison pipeline that you see. Yeah. I mean, there is so much there. And I remember when I was working in juvenile justice, I read the Sex Abuse to Prison Pipeline by Rights for Girls and other contributors. And everything that they were seeing described exactly what we were seeing. So, you know, what I see is that there is a connection between your PTSD responses. You know, we know that there's fight, we know flight, we know freeze. And those are actually linked um, to actual offenses a juvenile can receive. So when you think about the flight response, you know, I see that as a runaway offense. So this, for an example, it's like a 13-year-old girl who runs away from home because she's tired of being sexually abused by her mother's paramour. You know, and she finally finds the courage to leave because this is the only way that she knows how to protect herself. And during the times of running away, she's propositioned to sell her body, essentially raped for shelter and food. And then that's when she gets picked up by the police and she's charged with a runaway offense. Or when you think about fight, you know, that's an assault offense. And this is seen in a 15-year-old girl that I knew. You know, she was fighting her mom when she was arrested. And what we didn't know at the time of her arrest is that she was repeatedly abused, physically abused by her mom. And she actually picked up a frying pan to defend herself. And she was she was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. Um, and what was not disclosed at the time was that she was a victim of familial pimping. And she was being sold for sex by her mother. 
or, you know, we see freeze of substance use. And so, you know, to drive the point a little bit further of child abuse and sex trafficking and juvenile justice, you know, we know the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. Um, and we also know that, you know, within the ACE study, they looked at 10 domains of stressors. So physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, mental illness, incarceration, substance use, and divorce. And so in general, if you have four or more ACEs, four or more adverse experiences as a child, it impacts your health and your life potential. And if you have six or more, it's found to cut 20 years off of your life. So if you look at the research on how ACEs are applied to youth within juvenile justice, they found that youth, um, that a child with four or more ACEs were 12 times more likely to have negative health outcomes. So they would be at risk for substance use, self-harm behaviors, school-related problems, disruptive behavior, and truancy. And then when you dig a little bit deeper and you look at the trends for girls, you know, girls within the juvenile justice system have higher rates of PTSD and comorbid substance use and suicidal ideation. Girls are twice as more likely to report five or more ACEs compared to boys, and they are more likely to endorse four times um, more likely of being sexually abused than boys. And so when, you know, the big thing about the um, sex abuse to prison pipeline is that you look at recidivism, you know, going back into juvenile justice. And research shows that a girl with a history of sexual abuse are five times more likely to recidivate within a 12-month period than a girl without sexual abuse history. Out of all the predictors um, and traditional risk factors, so, you know, they would be like substance use, prior juvenile justice involvement, or even severity of offense, it's found that the history of sexual abuse is a stronger predictor. So basically, uh, childhood sexual abuse is at the epicenter of the issue of trafficking and incarceration of children. Clearly, this is a healthcare problem, but it really feels like in the U.S. we treat this more as a criminal justice issue. Why? Why is that? Why don't we have more of the healthcare providers involved in solving this problem? Um, I mean, I think ultimately, coming from the lens and the experience of you know juvenile justice, I think there is an over reliance on the incarceration of children. That somehow that that is going to fix the problem when ultimately it is a health issue. It's a health problem. It's a public policy issue. And it also comes down to the failings of the CPS system and education system. Is there any healthcare efforts to support? I mean, obviously, it's going to be a multi-pronged approach that we need, and that's what you guys are taking at Poetic. But is is there a movement to involve the healthcare system a little more in helping solve some of these early childhood traumas and support the mental health of these young women so they can heal and move on to live productive, happy, healthy lives? Yeah, yeah. And I wish that there were more, you know, I think um, specifically in Texas, but I think more across the country, you're going to see more mandatory trainings on sex trafficking on how to identify and what to do when you do identify. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that, um, you know, when a youth or even an adult are in trafficking situations, they make a lot of encounters with, with hospitals, with ERs, but they're rarely identified. So first is the training to um, know what to look for in the signs. Um, but then also, 
the difficulty is that I found is that, um, you know, therapy alone is not the answer. So when you think about therapy, you often think about a 50 minute session every single week. And it's very cost prohibitive. It's, it's expensive if you don't have insurance um, to find real good quality evidence-based therapy. And, you know, when I had my private practice, I would get referrals for survivors of trafficking. And frankly, 50 minutes a week is not enough. And that was one of the motivations of creating Poetic. You know, we have on-site programming of 36 hours a week because it's not just focusing on the trauma and building up skills, but it's building up um, a community, building up normative childhood experiences um, that is just, you know, equally important. So stepping back, um, you know, what are some of the things that we can do to stop child trafficking to begin with? you always hear like, how do I stop child sex trafficking? And there is that dynamic of if you stop demand, you'll stop the supply, right? If you stop, um, you know, the Johns, those who are buying sex with children um, and raping children, like that you're going to stop the supply. And there is validity to that. And what's really refreshing and great to see is that the national response of now going after the buyer, not just the trafficker, but the buyer, so that is great to see that somehow that that is not, you know, it used to be um, almost permissible back in the day. But now we're saying, no, you know, um, a person who purchases a child to be raped, you will be charged. But again, you know, in order for us to really stop the trafficking of minors, we have to kind of take many steps back and, you know, fix the CPS system that is meant to protect our children from abuse and repeated abuse. You know, we have to make our educational system more equitable across the board, because if a child is not getting a genuine good education in school, they're going to get educated from the streets. Um, and we have to understand that, you know, the harms of objectifying and sexualizing girls, especially girls of color. And we have to understand that racism is embedded in this issue. And, you know, research shows that like black girls are disproportionately at risk of being exploited. You know, they're often trafficked at a younger age due to the adultification of young black girls. And we see that, you know, at Poetic, 96% of our girls are girls of color. And that's because wow. they're overrepresented within the CPS and juvenile justice system. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, one last thing is that we have to provide equitable opportunity for accumulating wealth. Um, we know without a shadow of a doubt, a lack of financial means is the number one lure into a life of exploitation. And in Dallas, we have one of the largest income disparities. So all of us, like how can we ensure that every youth, no matter their gender, ethnicity, or background, has an equal shot of building a life worth thriving? We'll be right back after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I read an interview in which you said, we are not in the business of rescuing anyone. We're in the business of female empowerment and showing the strength, resilience, and power of women united to end the cycle of re-victimization for girls. For us, poetic means your story is not done. It's constantly evolving and improving, all the while persisting forward. I love that. Tell us about your mission and your background, what ultimately led to this work. Yeah. And, you know, that is a hundred percent sincere. And I think if you, you know, um, you know, at our core of who we are, you know, we are just brutally honest. Um, and we reject the idea that our youth are in need of rescuing, you know, we're not saving anyone. Um, poetic is an organization that truly is against the idea of saviorism. And you can see that from the diversity of our staff, of centering the voices of our girls and employing them and never exploiting their face or their history, their trauma or their circumstances to elevate our mission or line our pockets. And we fully understand that the reason why the issue of exploitation and trafficking of minors is so prevalent is because of inequity, you know, and like I've mentioned, like, you know, it is the broken education system and the CPS system and the over-reliance and juvenile justice system. But you can't deny and mistake that racism and sexism and the objectification of girls are all intertwined. And, you know, we really kind of reject this idea of like, come here, we're going to rescue you and save you. You know, without us, what is your life? You know, really what we were intending to do is when I think about my own children and the... Um, you know, the resources afforded to them, that's all that we're trying to do for at Poetic is really fill in the gaps. So we are providing equitable access to education. And this is good, high quality, teacher-led education, therapy, creative expression, and career development. You know, essentially doing our best to repair what was robbed and taken from our own from our children due to their traumas that they endured at no fault of their own. Um, so kind of just repairing what was robbed from them ultimately. And you guys run a school. Yeah. And you run the therapy. You don't you don't offer housing though, right? They're yeah. on their own for housing. Yeah, and there's a lot of housing options within the Dallas community. Um, so we just, you know, the relationships, having like real good relationship with those providers are, are cr- critical. So no housing, but we do have an on-site school, trauma therapy with 24-7 access to support. And that's the other piece. You know, it's going to be very rare if you're in therapy and your therapist is going to be available 24-7. 
You know, when could you ever like text your therapist? Um, but a poetic, you can not only your therapist, but your caseworker. It's kind of ingrained in the culture. Um, and also creative arts therapy. You know, we really believe in the healing powers of creativity. You know, creativity really is the language of adolescence. So we want to be able to um, provide a platform for them to grow in that kind of self-expression. And then also the paid internships, because it's important for them to be able to kind of envision a life and a career that inspires them. So um, we want to be able to offer that in-house. What kind of internships do they have? So there's a lot. So we actually launched our entrepreneurial institute where they learn the fundamentals of business and also being an entrepreneur, you know, so identify a passion, build a business around it. And we're going to give you kind of the know-how and the support to build your business. But we knew that that in itself can be very daunting. So in parallel, we, we launched our own social enterprise because we wanted to model to them what it looks like to start from nothing and create something that's very creative and that you can be passionate about. So we um, created our own line of handmade stationery. And we call it from discard to purpose. And, you know, our girls are employed in the social enterprise where they learn how to make paper from discarded items, which ends up being stationary for purchase. But then in addition to that, you know, they are paid to be in every facet of poetic. So we have those that, you know, um, are in culinary that provide meals for our girls. We have interns who are in our development. So, you know, connecting with our donors or saying thank our thank you cards or even our social media, you know, everything is really centered on um, the voices and opinions of our girls. So you're trained as a forensic psychologist and I have to know, um, you know, how does this differ from traditional psychology? Yeah, so... Um, I received my master's and doctorate in clinical psychology. So we already know, you know, like within clinical psychology, you're applying psychological principles um, to the treatment and diagnosis of human behavior and functioning. Um, but I wanted to specialize in forensic psychology specific to child maltreatment. So um, um, I did my fellowship at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey um, at their Audrey Hepburn Children's House. And I would conduct psychological evaluations in children involved with TPS and do, you know, um, conduct evaluations to assess parental capacity, risk evaluations, concerns of child maltreatment. So basically the difference between clinical psychology and forensic psychology is that you're answering, you know, legal questions for attorneys and judges um, and kind of providing a different view and objective view of, of assessments. And you were doing that before you started Poetic professionally? Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is that I thought that I was kind of on this road as a forensic psychologist because, you know, being able to assess, properly assess, um, and kind of speak on behalf of a youth or a child who might not have the words, you know, there was something very empowering about that. But um, my husband comes home one day and says, Oh, guess what? You know, we're moving to Texas. We were living in New Jersey at that time. Um, and that was a shock to me um, and my career. Um, so when we moved to Texas, the only job I applied to at that time was um, at Dallas County Juvenile Department. So in 2014, I had the privilege of serving as the first clinical director 
they were building an RTC and a residential treatment center within the juvenile departments to provide long-term treatment for girls who've experienced complex trauma in Dallas. And prior to this RTC, if you were a girl and adjudicated in need of long-term treatment, you were sent out of state. So the Dallas community came together. They raised around like eight, nine million dollars to ensure that our girls can find treatment closer to home. What was interesting is that, you know, having all the resources given to you and all all the trust given to you to build a treatment program, you know, that was rooted in evidence-based practices, we had, you know, really like leaders in the field of sex trafficking come to Dallas, train our staff. So we had gems from New York come, My my, My Life, My Choice from Boston come. You know, it was phenomenal to be taught and to be led by those who, you know, have been working in this field for such a long time. And so when we built our treatment program, trained our staff, the girls that came into the RTC, they thrived in this environment. You know, for for many, it was the first time where they were safe and supported. They no longer had to be stressed about being victimized or finding food or shelter. And instead, they could focus on their education and their treatments. And after we had the first groups of girls successfully discharged, I would hear back from many of them. And within a matter of months, they would run away from home, be truant from school, be exploited and trafficked all over again. Um, because essentially it came down to like kids adapt. You know, they adapted to the safety and structure at the RTC. And without that same level of support, they adapted to the community around them. Um, and one, you know, one pivotal moment is uh, one night I was scrolling through social media And I followed the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And staring back at me was a girl, one of our first residents at the RTC. She was, you know, so creative and she was just a born leader. And one marked difference in her appearance was that now she had a male's name tattooed across her forehead. um, Wow. Which is the branding of, you know, somebody being trafficked. And could you, like, I, I just, my heart stopped. Like, I just... Um, and that was a career pivotal moment where I knew that, you know, was I doing more harm and I wasn't doing enough. And so I left the stability of a county job and create a poetic with my co-founder, Jennifer Tinker. Um, and from the very beginning, we wanted to be very intentional of ending the cycle of revictimization, that this was not going to be just a therapy program or a case management program or an advocate program. Like, What are the underlying factors that we see systemically in Dallas and all across the country? And what do we need to do? And that is why our program is as comprehensive as it is. Like you really need all four systems to be effective. And what our outcomes have showed in, in, you know, just four years as a nonprofit, 97.5% of our girls avoid returning to the juvenile justice system. I think the national average is around like 50%. A hundred percent of our girls that come to us, they complete probation successfully. And um, typically a girl that comes to us are around two to three grade levels behind similar age peers. And instead now they're receiving individualized education and earning their high school diploma. And, you know, to go back to that girl that I saw on social media, um, a year after Poetic was created, she found us and she came to us um, to receive services in our trauma therapy center and our school. And um, in 2019, 
she was part of our very first graduating class at our school for girls. Awesome. Right. And to see her like walk across the stage, get her high school diploma, like that in itself was just like, you know, I could die right there. Like that was so incredibly meaningful. Um, And really that's what we do day in and day out with our phenomenal staff. We just merely provide a platform. Amazing. So uh, when I, on my honeymoon, I made the mistake of reading this, A Stolen Life, which is the book about uh, J.C. Duggard and how she was kidnapped oh. and um, held hostage by her rapist for, was like 20 years. And it, I mean, it, it ruined my entire honeymoon. I was so depressed and sad from reading this story. And you work with these sort of heavy stories every single day. How how do you detach from work when you need to be with your family, given just the harrowing realities of the world that you're exposed to at work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's the biggest question, especially for any therapist working in trauma or anybody that, you know, it's the issue of vicarious trauma. Um, and you know, and it, it, it irks me when people are like, you know, just go to yoga or just, you know, have a cup of coffee. Like it's more than that. Um, and I think ultimately um, we were intentional and in building poetic where we put culture first because we knew that the burnout rate was so significant for any kind of service provider. And we knew that in order for us to be successful, we had to prioritize our staff and our staff's well-being. So, you know, we are made up of a phenomenal team of empowered women. We are all diverse and many of us are are mothers. And so all of that comes into play in our organization. You know, the expectation that somehow you detach yourself as a mom to be a working mom is, you know, ridiculous. So oftentimes you would see, you know, our own kids coming with us to Poetic because, you know, or the flexibility of kind of, you know, you need to take care of you, like your health, your mental health, your family, and know that your team at Poetic has your back so that we can be present and genuine with the girls that we serve because we are a support to them and their family 24-7. So I think um, the culture of the organization is huge. And we have 11 core values that we hire and that we fire by. And they're all rooted in self-awareness and in, and in being kind and being evidence-based and ultimately putting the youth first. So, I mean, it's a very complicated question because there's a lot there. You know, a lot of it is how to, you know, pick your battles and separate what is in your control and what is not in control and who you can ask for help and who in the community can do it better. And, um, you know, really building up that ecosystem of support. So, Heysung, what is next for you and Poetic? Yeah, um, so there are there's so much happening at Poetic. Like two months before COVID really hit, we had uh, we built a beta program with the Child Protection and Permanency Court in Dallas, and we were successful in identifying like core clinical program that fills the gaps for vulnerable youth. We're going to be um, transitioning from a beta program to a full program now, since we have validated that the program that we created is is meaningful and it's useful. Um, we are ready to launch our line of products inspired and created by Poetic Girls. So, you know, a little bit before the holidays, look out for that. 
Um, and then, a, yeah, we're really excited <laughs> about that. Um, and on a personal level, kind of what I have been, you know, really focused on is looking at our outcomes so that we can contribute to literature on trends that we are seeing so that it can inform best practices, you know, that you cannot take away evidence-based therapy from efficacy and also the importance of education and economic empowerment. Um, and, you know, we know that our comprehensive model is effective and we get requests, you know, to open up poetic in other cities. And while, you know, we really do want to take um, our impact on a national scale, we want to do it in a manner that is respective to the existing structures in that city. So we are looking out, um, looking at ways to share our insights and knowledge to empower those already doing the work. Awesome. And other than looking out for the poetic products that should be great stocking stuffers, yes. how else can people support your work? You know, as a nonprofit, we rely on the generosity of people, um, people who are moved by our mission and they want to invest in the impact that we are making. So um, I encourage, you know, like reach out, donate your time, your skills, your gifts to Poetic and really join our movement. You know, it truly is a movement to end the cycle of revictimization of youth. Amazing. I am a proud donor to Poetic. Yes, and you're just, so fortunate. Thank you so they, much. Thank you for everything that you do for these young girls. They will be on my mind as they learn and grow through you guys. And I can't wait to get more updates on all the things that you guys are able to accomplish. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom on such an important topic. Thank you for this opportunity and giving me a platform to be able to share our mission um, and just your continued support. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. If you liked today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare with Hallie Tecco is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Holly Tecco and Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our music is by... Utah. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.